Infinite Horrors Podcast. Norman, you don't have any gumption. You can't do anything. You do an incredible, overbearing, psychotic mom. Thank you. <laughs> Psycho! Yippee. We both love it. <laughs> it's so it's so good. <laughs> I every time I I watch it, I just remember how much I love it. When you first saw Psycho, did you know the twist ending at the end before you saw it? It's sort of no. like it's like when I first saw Star Wars, it's hard to escape the I am your, no, like, no, I am your father line. You know what I mean? So you kind of go into the movie having that uh, twist somewhat ruined for you, but not that it really matters, you know? It's not. I never had that, luckily. Luckily, all of the marketing tactics from 1960 worked on me, right? Oh. (laughs) Well, we'll get get into that. That's part of Hitchcock's little gimmicky brilliance. Yes. (laughs) I guess a good place to start would be the history behind it and what brought the idea of Psycho into Alfred Hitchcock's hands. Absolutely. Naturally, it's based off of a book by Robert Block. Robert Block is uh, typically a weird fiction, science fiction, dark fantasy writer, and Psycho was really a big deviation from most of the stuff he did in that it was this grounded psychological thriller. The book came out about a year or two before the movie. The movie was in 1960, and the book itself, it's loosely based upon the murders of Wisconsin serial killer celebrity Ed Gein. But it's important to mention that Robert Block specifically said that he was more inspired by Ed Gein's upbringing than his murders, and Alfred Hitchcock was more inspired by the actual horror of his actions, at least from what I've read. So it's interesting that they have a little bit of a different inspiration from this horrible mass murderer. (laughs) But that always interested me, especially because I think that that makes a lot of sense with the story of Psycho. Norman Bates is definitely not like Ed Gein to me, but it is a story of how these people come to be. Yes. And I will just set up how I view this entire story. I think it is a tragedy in three parts. (laughs) I think it's one of the saddest stories written, but is just so good at doing what it does there, balancing the horror and the tragedy of this story. Where do you find the tragedy in the story? Like I said, it it comes in three parts. So first we have the tragedy of like this horrible abuse of a child and how he goes through that completely isolated and alone. And that causes him to have his mental illness. And then we have the tragedy of the murders Later on, you know, it's very sad that two people had to die because of this. And then we have the tragedy of how he's branded as a deviant without getting any proper medical care and locked away forever. And it's important to recognize that Robert Block set it up in this way because it's very clear that Sam and Lila also see this as a tragedy because they empathize with what happened to Norman and they, at the end recognize that he's had a really terrible experience himself and what's happened is a tragedy but they're also aware that norman isn't norman yeah it's i think it's 
a very, very complex and layered story for how short and concise it is. It's brilliant, honestly. It's one of my favorites. For any of our listeners who haven't seen Psycho, which would be fine, <laughs> you should go see it immediately. Or read the book. It's honestly, it's not as long a read as I thought it would be. Oh, it's, it's very about, short. If you got the edition I got, it's about 170 pages, give or take. But for those of you who haven't seen it, I think a real quick synopsis would do. Story starts out, at least in our film, because we'll, we'll focus on the film, with a young woman named Marion Crane. Crane, you know, keep that bird reference in the back of your mind for later, because there's Always. tons of little bird references here and there, Alfred Hitchcock. And while we're talking about Hitchcock, not in the gotta duck from these crows type of birds, but you know... <laughs> <laughs> Same love. We love a good bird metaphor, right? <laughs> and I will mention that one of the faults I find in the movie is how they set up Marion. Marion the book, right? Not Marion, but Marion in the movie. Right. It's, I guess we should <laughs> say in the book, she goes by Mary, but for the purpose of not confusing the shit out of everybody, we'll just call her okay. Marion and say there's book Marion and movie Marion. Right. It would just, I might trip over my own tongue occasionally if we That's do that. <laughs> but yes, I would like to just quickly point out that the book is much stronger at setting up the background of Marion's motivation and why this whole sequence of events starts. Because in the book, she has a really rough upbringing. She has to deal with an ailing parent. She has to deal with supporting her family herself. She has to give up college. She has like just blow after blow after blow, not a very charmed right. life. And then suddenly she gets the opportunity to go on a cruise and she meets Sam and he's crushed by all this debt from his father and inheriting his business. And she doesn't really get to see him very often. But the thing that's keeping them from being together is this debt hanging over his head. So when we get to the catalyst of starting all the action, when she decides to steal the money from her boss's client, that 40 grand, there's this anxiety of, wow, my life has been terrible. I sympathize with her plight. Yeah, it makes more sense to me. I mean, I guess that's the big difference between you know novels and movies, is that in the novel, you really get the inside view of what's going on in her head kind of the gears that moved in a way to prompt her to commit, you know, stealing $40,000 in 1960. That's a lot of money. That's a whole lot of money right now. In 1960, I mean, you know, we could do quick numbers for inflation, but I won't. But just, you know, take my word for it. That's a good chunk of change. But in a film, it would be a horribly boring thing for her to have like an exposition dump for a scene explaining like, oh, well, back in the day, my mother was ailing and I had to put everything on my life on hold. And I mean, that's understandable. I know they only have so much time. But after revisiting the book for the first time in a very long time, now that I'm much older than the first time I read it, there was this new sense of how much the nonchalance of just, oh, yeah, I guess I'll just decide to steal this. There wasn't really like the same level of anxiety that comes across and like the same level of like this needs to happen this is there's no really other choice for my happiness it, it just feels right. so much either i take this money or i'm doomed to this the rest of exactly. my life it's, of, if, like, i guess it's like, like static yeah i guess it's like low stakes to me but you know that is the only issue i think i have with the movie because honestly it's my second favorite movie adaptation of a book 
so far that I have seen. Wow. Second yeah. favorite. I, A- right after Scanner Darkly. So, you know. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Oh, great. Yeah. But yeah, I think one of the ways that the movie comes through is just in its pacing. The pacing is very similar to the dramaticism of the book. You know, the characters are all really similar. Anthony Perkins does a perfect job, I think, at conveying his character. Sorry, not to get too sidetracked. Do you want to finish up the synopsis before (laughs) we confuse any listeners? I think we're doing it in a good way. I mean, yeah, so she takes the money and she decides, I'm going to use this money and go find my boo Sam and we could elope, pay off his debts and ride into the sunset. So she takes this money and something that the book and the movie do really well is give you the inner monologue of her anxieties of getting caught. Mm -hmm. do it in different ways and we'll go over those different ways later, but for the sake of just getting through the synopsis so we can get into the nitty gritty. I'll refrain. (laughs) So she gets this money and she decides it's getting late. I'm getting sleepy at the wheel. I need to find a place to rest so I can get to the end of this journey and into better days. And so she decides to stop at the Bates Motel, which proves to be the worst decision she's ever made after stealing the money, perhaps. So she gets to the Bates Motel and it's empty. There's nobody staying there at the time. And a funny little man named Norman Bates comes to greet her. And in the book, he's described as middle-aged, overweight, balding, kind of meek, kind of diminished, very insecure, clearly beaten down by some unseen psychological force. Well, I mean, you know, that, I feel that, like initially that, he's just a very lonely, sad man, you know? And sure. I think in my head, I picture Norman Bates from the book as more of a Peter Laurie character than an Anthony Perkins sure. character. But I know that I told you that I don't think an audience would empathize with the unattractive, awkward, you know, creepy Norman from the book as much as they would empathize with the very attractive and charming Anthony Perkins, who still manages to convey the personality of Norman Bates very accurately and very, very well with immense nuance. Like even talking about the switching between all of these characters that, you know, one person has to play when you're dealing with the... Spoiler alert, Norman Bates <laughs> is suffering from multiple personality disorder because of his traumas and his quote unquote mother, who is in fact his dominant personality, kills Marion and the PI who comes to look into her death later and then is subsequently caught. And we'll talk about this, but I really want to get into some of the nuance because when we talk about Norman, we're talking about three characters. We're talking about Child Norman, adult Norman, and then the dominant mother character. And I think one of the best things that Anthony Perkins does is he really changes his face every time he switches. And one of the best examples I can ever give you is the scene when Arbogast is questioning him. And he's very clearly in child Norman form because he's doing the subtle teasing. He's like eating candy. And then when he's lying... He does the childlike thing where he goes, no, no. And then like immediately retracts and goes, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But then he like every time he wins his lies or gets away with his lie, he does 
like a duper's delight little smile. A little like shading grin. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what kids do because they don't have the control to hide the joy of getting away with a lie. And you see duper's delight in a lot of body language from getting away with lying. And I think it's such like these little subtle things that really put you into that character. And oh my God, it's just so great. Yes. Anthony Perkins is uh, an incredible actor, or was, sorry. He yeah, very sadly from AIDS. He had a very tumultuous yeah. life, I think. He he was very clearly a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. But, you know, yeah. between the fear of being outed by tabloids and the ridicule that came with that in the mid-20th century, in the 50s and 60s, as well as just the immense shame he felt for those feelings he married a woman he had kids he always had boyfriends and like rendezvous but you know he very sadly got sick and died of aids and it's a tragedy in itself so who better to play such a tragic character right oh man norm bates in the film has this really beautiful line about how we're all in our own little prisons Mm -hmm. that we're born into It's sad knowing the personal history of Anthony Perkins to hear him say a line like that. Someone who really was caught and trapped in his own prison, unable to really be himself because of the world he lived in at the time. Yeah. And just to add to the history of this time period for cinema, we're in the Hayes Code era from the like 30s to the 60s i think it officially ended in 68 but you know the repercussions weren't really gone until the 80s the hayes code for anyone who doesn't know was a series of rules for how film is supposed to be shot and what is supposed to be shown on film so you couldn't have any crime in a in a positive light and like there were a lot of rules about showing crime you couldn't show law enforcement in a bad light You couldn't show drugs and alcohol unless it was integral to the plot. You couldn't have nudity or like sexual overtones. And a big one, you couldn't have anything that showed a low standard of life, including the quote unquote amorality of homosexuality, right? And to give you an idea of why this was happening, one of the other rules was you can't show any Christian clergy or ideas of Christianity in a mocking manner. So we're in a very conservative religious mindset. And it caused a lot of the tragic queer characters that we see in cinema. But I think that really comes through here at the end when we hit the third part of the tragedy, when the system that he should rely on for help ultimately fails him, right? And Norman is aware of this from the beginning. I mean, one of the first things he says to Marion is when he first switches into the mother character and we see that shift in tone from their initial dinner conversation. It's because she suggests putting the mother in a home and he gets extremely offended. And he's like, one of those places, do you know what goes on in there? And understandably, it's not a nice place. And he's aware of, he and his mother character, because I'm sure that adult Norman is also aware of this, recognize that it's a bad place to go. It doesn't help you. It only hurts you. And yet we come full circle at the end when he winds up in the exact place he was trying to keep his mother out of. And not only that, becomes his mother fully. And so his mother winds up there anyway. Yeah. They were still shocking people in the brain pretty liberally yeah. at that time, you know, just to numb you out, 
wasn't really a matter of fixing you. As Put it you was away to, you know. from public view, just like Nellie Bly went undercover to show us back in the day. You ever see that Geraldo Rivera special he did? He went to, gosh, I think it was a Bellevue mental facility where like all these mm-hmm. kids were just naked, wandering the halls aimlessly, covered in their own filth, you know, just pretty deplorable places. Not places of healing. No, (laughs) no. It's very clear the Hayes Code is a part of that tragedy because at the end, instead of viewing Norman as he is, and like the audience sees him and like Lila and Sam see him him as this very um, tragic character who's obviously suffering from mental illness that is the result of years of abuse and trauma. And instead, we have this very dramatic... 12 Angry Men style exposition of his entire past. And then it's explained away because he's a sexual deviant, because he's a transvestite. He's not a transvestite. He's suffering from multiple personality disorder. But because of that, of course, he's amoral. Of course, this is something he would do. Of course, he would kill all these people. And the movie actually adds two additional homicides that the mother commits of these two young girls. I think it's mostly just to show how much anger was towards young women because of the weird dynamic there. But, you know, of course he's going to specifically commit acts against young girls because he's this amoral sexual deviant. And, you know, we're going to expose and have this exposition of all this abuse, but that doesn't matter because he's, he's not someone we're going to take care of. He's just going to be locked away for being this terrible, evil person. And it's it's very sad, you know? Extremely so. But, you know, the book was fairly popular when it came out. And the story of how it landed in Hitchcock's hands was that Hitchcock was the guy who would read the New York Times book review every Sunday. And then on Monday, have his... I mean, who doesn't? I wish I did more. That's not where I get my book reps, but... <laughs> I mean, there's some good ones on there for sure. There's also a fair amount of politics that go into how no, you get I on know. there. I'm, I prefer my Goodreads lists. <laughs> Precisely. So he reads the Sunday paper and he gets his little list of books and projects he might want to do. And the coverage for Psycho just kept not getting to him. So finally, he read the book himself on a flight from uh, the United States back to his home in England. And he lands from the flight and asks his wife to read the book. And his wife reads the book, Alma, Alma Hitchcock. And for Alfred Hitchcock, anything that he wanted to do had to get through her first. So if she said no to a project, Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't do it. And I, I don't know. That's something I didn't really know until I was doing research for this episode. Obviously, it's a good system. And I love that. Because she gave us a lot of good <laughs> like quality control. Exactly. Uh, I love Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> gatekeeper of sorts. And then finally, so he read the book, she read the book, got the go, and they started production on this movie. They got, the screenwriter for this was Stefan Stefano, also who got the clear from Alma Hitchcock. And Stefano wasn't really a well-known writer at the time. But he did the book justice. He really did. And that's not something, especially these days, I feel like the last time I saw an accurate adaptation of a book. I I can't even like bring one up in my head. Like the first two seasons of Game of Thrones were like somewhat similar. 
I, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't even talk about that show. I am not familiar with the books or the TV show, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, well, I won't, I won't egg you on here. <laughs> Do you know if this same writer did the screenplay for Psycho 2? I'm not sure. Oh, it's funny. It was written by a guy named Tom oh. Holland. You know, the, you know, the guy. <laughs> Pretty sure he wasn't no, no. born yet. <laughs> no relation. Unless, you know, these Hollywood types are the blood-sucking <laughs> immortals that we hear about. <sighs> it's funny. You always see those pictures. Like, look at this guy from the Civil War who looks just like Nick Cage. A coincidence. This is the Ouroboros of coincidence and celebrity. I'm telling you, I'll, I can rant about this for ages. I won't to spare you all, but I have a lot of gripes with this. Celebrities don't do much to dispel the wild accusations thrown against them. It's all, all (laughs) news is, you know, all, all publicity is good publicity, right? That's what it is. Anyway, I only ask because I know that one of my favorite little tidbits from getting really into this book again and really loving Robert Block Mm -hmm. again is that the whole reason he wrote the second Psycho book is essentially out of revenge, which I love. I love somebody who's motivated by spite. I really do. And when he heard that Psycho 2, the movie, was in the works, he wanted to write the screenplay, obviously. And, you know, it would have been fantastic. Yeah. But essentially, he got denied and then wrote Psycho 2, the book, out of spite and published it before the movie came out. Which I love. It's yeah, so I, much I can fun. Really sympathize with that. It's like so. I made this incredible story, and some other guy capitalized the shit out of it. You know, Alfred Hitchcock. Arguably, that's his seminal film. You know, when you think of Psycho, you don't even think of Robert Block. Yeah. You think of Alfred Hitchcock. And then when they say, "Well, we're going to make another movie and make a whole lot of more money off of your idea," but you can't be involved. And so like you're saying, I was like, fuck it, I'll write my own book, you know, and good on him. Have you ever seen the movie Gentleman Broncos? No. What's that about? With Jermaine Clement. It's essentially this. It's like a child who's an aspiring sci-fi writer submits screenplay to a competition hosted by his favorite sci-fi writer. And then the sci-fi writer hasn't written anything useful in a while. So he steals this child's novel and rebrands it as his own. And that's all I can think of right now (laughs) from the way you're describing it. Hey, poor guy. Writers in Hollywood are scared sometimes to like send their work out because they think, well, what if that manager or producer takes my idea and changes it? And like, that's why you have two Armageddons in the same year, Mm -hmm. Armageddon and Deep Impact, or you have Dante's Peak and the volcano. You know, you, you assume like maybe someone took an idea very much unlike Troll 1 and Troll 2, which are oh. unrelated. Nilbog. <laughs> but I think we should definitely think about revisiting Psycho in the sequels, both the books and the movies, Absolutely. and see how much their vision for the secondary chapter of the story changes, you know? Yeah. Because I think that would be fun. I genuinely have not seen those movies or read those sequels and i should (laughs) i don't know what stopped me up to this point it's funny there are sequels in the first place because i mean when it came out when psycho came out it critically it was kind of not panned you know it wasn't like a it wouldn't be the equivalent of a zero percent on rotten tomatoes today but famously like the new york times reviewer at the time said it was a bomb 
well, uh, critics again, Hayes code, not like, you know, it's not really no, right at all their little fragile sensibilities. Psycho did a first for a lot of things. I mean, it showed more skin on naked bodies than movies had in a long time. I don't know. I feel like the 20s were quite out there. That was like a big push for the conservative movement of film. It was just... No, right, right. But then, but then the Hayes Code, to redact what I said, since the Hayes Code, okay, there was plenty of uh, boobies flapping around and, and naked men twirling about in the 20s. But since the Hayes Code, Psycho was an aberration in how shocking it was to people. I, a famously fun little trivia bit about Psycho is that Psycho is the very first movie to feature a toilet, a flushing toilet, even more the so. Scandal. Which, the scandal. The absolute scandal. I, I Such can't recover scandal. from this. I think I have to. I want to, my money back. I want my money back. Know, can't <laughs> buy shower curtains. Can't close my, my bathroom door. Have to stare at it. Can't flush my toilet. It's all trauma from this <laughs> terrible movie. This toilet has destroyed the minds of our youth and years of public school brainwashing has been undone by this film. And a lot of people point to Psycho when they talk about the first slasher, but, you know, there are other early slasher-esque films. I mean, like, I think about 13 women, at least, and, like, the kind of implied killing of people in some earlier films. But, you know, between... Bernard Herrmann's beautiful score, which obviously inspired Reanimator and like a lot of other things. But, you know, Bernard Herrmann always knocks it out of the park with just how emotive his music is and how much it adds to a scene. I don't think there's a more iconic sound than the strings of the knife coming down. Like everyone oh, yeah. uses that as a horror trope now because he, it's so iconic. But that mixed with the seven days of shooting that shower scene, you know, and just the perfectionist angle of that without being exploitative, as opposed to some other slasher films we see, right? It's conservative compared to the book, right? Yeah, the book is actually uh, much more violent than the movie is. And much more sexually charged. Yeah, yeah. You get his inner monologue when he's doing his Peep and Tom shit. Well, there's that, but it's also specifically set up in the book to show how afraid of women he is because of the values his mother instilled on him. And like the book very much explains that he's afraid to touch Marion. He is so afraid to be near her and the whole act of peeping on her is extremely shameful and only something he can do when he's drunk. Yeah, that's the other difference. In the book, Norman is a wild alcoholic. And that's kind of like his segue into... It triggers his blackouts. It triggers his transference of personality from timid little Norman to... Well, it makes sense, right? Because when he's stressed out, he wants to drink. And when he's stressed out, his dominant personality, which is going to protect him like a mother comes through and takes over because this is a woman who has shown immense domination of her child. She isolates him. She instills all these fears, fosters this very unnatural connection that brings us the iconic line from the movie. Well, every little boy's best friend is his mother. (laughs) This very clearly unhealthy relationship. And it's because of that, that he never grows up. And you see this because of the dialogue from the the book, but also to an extent the movie, but it's like the, you know, you don't have any gumption. You can't do anything. That was an incredible (laughs) 
imitation. That was really well done. Thank you. <laughs> Norman, reading those books about those Incans. You know, I love, I love the voice. Actually, wow, the you voice. Did an incredible, overbearing, psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess that means I shouldn't have kids, right? <laughs> but you know, the in the movie, the voice of Norma. The mother is actually three uncredited voice actresses as well, right, which I yes. think is fascinating. And, you know, Anthony Perkins wasn't even there for the shower scene because he was doing another shoot um, in Europe, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it's this like overbearing, like you can't have your own person. Everything you do is wrong. Everything you do is weak. Like it's very clear how he yeah. has gotten to this point. That overbearing mother trope isn't just evident in Norman in the movie. That theme is planted in earlier in the film really well by the screenwriter and Hitchcock. There's a couple parts, one where Marion and Sam are together in the very beginning in their hotel room. Marion's half naked, Sam's half naked, they're getting hot and heavy, and they're talking about what they're going to do when they go on a date. And Marion's like, oh, I'll cook you a steak and we can have dinner. And the picture of my mother will be on the mantel place. And that is there on purpose because it's kind of like mother watching over this date of hers. And then to mirror that, the first time we see the mother in the film is her silhouette overlooking the motel and Marion from the window. High up moms looking down watching their kids. For instance, yeah, the owl. To follow that up, Hitchcock's bird metaphors as well as his camera angles, you know, one of the best manipulators of the audience perspective, you know, of all time, right? But the the changes from the high camera angle to the low camera angle when we experience shifts in Norman and how he feels. Right. Because he's always small when he's a boy, and he's always looking down on everyone when he's the mother. And then we get those birds of prey that come with that shot in the background of, you know, the very predatory mother and the dominance that that exudes and the dramatic lighting. Right. For you listeners, next time you watch this movie, pay close attention to the birds in the shot uh, when Norman's speaking. Because when Norman is more timid and Norman is Norman... The birds that are around him are all these kind of like regular old birds, I guess, uh, seed seed and bug eaters. And then uh, when the mother takes over, the camera, again, the angles change and predatory birds that like linger over Norman like his mom must be in his mind. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. really brilliant stuff. I mean, Hitchcock was a meticulous planner in terms of everything that was in the shot. For instance, Marion's moral descent is visually shown when before she steals the money and you see her half naked, she's wearing a white bra and a white slip. And then mm. after she steals the money, she's wearing a black bra and a black slip. And, you know, it's very on the nose, but that's the sort of visual symbolism Mm -hmm. that Alfred Hitchcock was all about. And he inserts that kind of stuff in all his movies. It's what gives him layers. It's very like... I I think Roman Polanski also did a lot of that, though Alfred Hitchcock is not as morally disgusting as Roman Polanski. So I always prefer Hitchcock um, for that reason. But I think it's a brilliant way to tie in Norman's love of taxidermy to make that such a symbol beautiful and my favorite scene of all time for the bird metaphor 
And actually, I only noticed it when I was watching Psycho after a shift when I was sailing on my North Atlantic cruise doing like scientific cruise. I don't believe in the cruise industry. I was collecting data for a (laughs) national program. And we watched Psycho up in like the break room. And I got so excited because for the first time, I noticed that when he is taking care of the body and he's panicking, the photos of the like the, the smaller birds in the room get knocked by its elbow and shattered and fall. And it's like wow. such a destruction of Norman having to like clean up after his mother after knowing that she did this horrible thing. And multiple personality disorder, he doesn't understand that his mother is just a figment of his fractured psyche. He truly believes that this mother who he is very attached to because of this abuse did this horrible thing and he has to protect her from that horrible fate of being in an asylum. Right. And again, ultimately doesn't work because at the end, she fully takes over because Norman cannot handle the stress of being caught for murder, being put in an asylum. And, you know, then the mother never ends her abuse because then she pins it all on Norman and gets mad that he thought that he could turn her in. I would like it to go on record that for anyone who thinks that the Kubrick stare should just be called the Kubrick stare, I want it to now be called the Perkins stare because I swear to God, he started it it and he did it perfectly. And I love the inner dialogue of the mother in that moment is very much taken from Robert Block's ending little mother monologue which is brilliant right, I won't hurt some of the best yeah. writing in the goddamn world i love it so much and just the shot of the fly and i i wouldn't hurt a fly you'll see i'll sit here just like the harmless old woman i am and like you just see the kubrick stare and then the flash of the mother and it's just oh you should record grim fairy tales in that voice <laughs> You, that, I, I, what a great skill. What a great skill. I am always <laughs> here to be the strange old woman in the background of everything. I'll do it just for you, Sam. I'll narrate a bunch of fairy tales just for you. Oh, good. Bluebeard, please. Ah, we should definitely do an episode because there's so much to talk about with Bluebeard. And also, if we're talking about early slashers, Definitely one of the earliest slashers, not in terms Bluebeard, of film, but in terms that. of story. Oh my god, horrifying! Love oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, hundred percent. Ah, god, old folklore is terrifying. <laughs> Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. 
also, because it's Hitchcock, we have to mention his cameo. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. I mean, well, you know, he does one in every movie, or at least he tries to. And this one's a family affair, because his daughter is Caroline in the office in the beginning. Right. Pat. Oh, man, she's got, she also has some weird mother shit going on. When she's talking to Marion, and she's like, oh, well, I was on the phone with my husband, and then I had to call my mother because my mother needed to know what I talked about with my husband. Oh, I don't even remember Again, more that. more of this really subtle, subtle hints at the greater themes that haunt Norman Bates later in the story are these overbearing mothers just never leaving, inserting themselves. And like, this is a very common horror trope as well. You know, you have Carrie of the first Friday the 13th, right? Like, not that that's an overbearing mother, but like, you know, all these horrifying oh, taking mothers. Protectiveness of your child to the yeah. nth degree. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I would at least group it in the same way. As you were saying before, the psychological basis of Norman Bates was stripped from real life serial killer Ed Gein, who similarly had a really deranged relationship with his mother. Parents fuck you up. <laughs> You know, it's uh, right for the picking. And at the point that Psycho came out, a lot of the more popular movies were like science fiction horror movies. Mm -hmm. You know, there, it wasn't much of like a psychological dive. It was more like a horror of the exterior as opposed to the horror of what's inside us. You know, the possibilities of us not knowing ourselves completely. It's just a great movie. There's so many layers to it. Never-ending, nitpicky analysis of, like, who is Norman? Is he completely to blame? I know you're of the volition that Norman is blameless. Norman, the personality, is blameless. Yeah, you know, no, I think, I genuinely think that Norman can't be blamed for his actions. I also believe that... that his mother, though, right? Like, I just think, if, I think it's solely his mother. And I think that that started with the suicide. And I'm calling it a suicide because I think the mother personality became rooted in him around the time he committed the first murder. Because I don't think Norman is capable of murder. I think that only his mother is and that's like psychologically abusive. I'm actually not sure if she was physically abusive, but I wouldn't put it past her. She was nuts. I think that her personality is the only one capable of murder. And I think that Robert Block pays attention to the suicide note for a reason. And I think it's a true suicide. That's my theory. I could be wrong. This is yeah. an opinion. But that's how I view it. And I think that it's very much a part of his fractured personality early on. And I know you disagree right. with me there. <laughs> Well, well no, it's, I guess the big thing is like, is it nature or is it nurture? Did he have this within him from the beginning? Was he pushed too far? Is it a mixture of both? I'm more inclined to say it's a mixture of both. And then we can go back to Polanski and be like, Rosemary's baby, is this the devil child or is this a tragedy again? You know, In the movie, at least, they explain that it was Norman who killed his mother and the mother's lover, because Norman got extremely jealous. Well, that's what the police say. Right. But he's... If we're going to if we're gonna take the police's word, I which, think, you know... Well, because it's another <laughs> institution that, again, is explaining the shallow version of what's happening, like in the end with the asylum mm. scene, the way that Norman saw it, he wrote a suicide note. His mother was writing that note. And I think the psyche fractured when... After his mother was so domineering and so abusive and created this unhealthy codependence, this 
in him that when he saw her having sexual relations with another man, which, you know, there is this weird, like, is... Like, I don't think it's a truly sexual relationship, as some people may imply, between Norman and Norma, but I think there's a weird sense of self between them, and I think that's definitely shown by the names, Norma and Norman. So I don't really see it as an incestuous or an Oedipal thing. I think it's just a very unhealthy codependence. Like, she wants a version of her that's utterly able to be controlled. And, like, when you foster that and you keep him from seeing girls, but you're being hypocritical, I think that's when he breaks. And I think that's when the mother that he's used to that's not hypocritical takes over. And I th- this is another mm-hmm. reason I think that the suicide note is a true suicide note. Right. Well, the quote in the movie that he says at some point is, a son is a poor substitute for a lover. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I absolutely see your point. It's assuming that when mother has taken over, Norman has no agency. And I completely agree with you. But it's, was mother present? And I guess we never know this. It's sort of like what we have to gather for ourselves and kind of assume is whether or not mother was present when Norman killed his mother and the lover, or if that's the moment that created mother in him to keep her alive. He had to fracture his mind and create her in his head after he had murdered her. Yeah, he definitely didn't understand that she was dead to begin with. You know, it's a very, it's complex, right? And I think that's open for interpretation. So again, I'm in the camp that thinks that walking in on them having sex was the fracture point. And then all of this happened because he wanted that physical presence of her to be there because, you know... Even though she's in his mind, he also needs the physical presence of his mother because he believes she's still alive because she was just stuck in that box for so long, you know, like I had to get her out of there, you know, <laughs> and he was in that hospital for ages. And yeah. You know, yeah, so if you're of the camp that this all fractured afterwards in order to deal with the death, I think that's also backed up by the book and the movie. I think it's just, which way do you lean? I'd be interested to see where every other fan of Psycho leans in this too. Well, the other thing is when he is Norman, when he's consciously Norman and he sees a dead woman on the floor in this bathroom, his instinct in the book is actually to be like, I got to tell on her because he doesn't see his mother. He's like, oh my God, she must have wandered off. She must be in the middle of the street somewhere. In the book, these are the first murders, right? The other murders that the movie mentions hadn't happened. Like what we see in the book are mother's first murders. And he's like, holy shit, what do I do? And in the movie and in the book, and this is where I find Norman not to be completely... I do sympathize with someone with such debilitating mental illness that somehow in the maelstrom of your mind, you find it okay to kill somebody. But Norman finds it okay to help his mom get away with murder. And I think that's where I draw the line. And okay, Norman, yes, he's traumatized. And that explains his obedience to mom. But he still goes through with disposing of bodies. Because for he's mom, completely you know? controlled by his mother. I don't think he's operating right. on any independent thought. Even that desire to save mm-hmm. his mother isn't because he genuinely loves her. Because can you have genuine love when you're essentially conditioned to make your mother the only person in your life and the most important person in your life because she's the only person in your life? Again, complicated questions, right? Different interpretations of this whole thing. 
I think he's a child. I think he never developed to have adult independent yeah. conscious thought. He's like one of his taxidermied birds. They're just stuck in time, just like Norman, you know, one part of mm-hmm. Norman's psyche, you know, that, that child that never got to grow up and cut the umbilical cord from mm-hmm. his mom. How do you deal with three separate people inhabiting one body when one of them's a serial killer? How do you do that? That would be a great sitcom. <laughs> That'd be a great sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anything, let Psycho be your sign to go and start therapy if you've been on the fence about starting therapy, right? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. I couldn't agree more. I have a therapy appointment today. <laughs> Examine your relationship with your mother. Yeah. It's funny you mention that because uh, the screenwriter, Stefan Stefano, one of the big reasons why Alfred Hitchcock was so interested in this writer in particular is because Stefano was so open about back in the day, they used to call it analyzing. You know, you're, it was your psychoanalyst oh, yes. and you went to get analyzed. <laughs> back when all of us women had hysteria and our uterus would wrap around our brain. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was so open about it in an age where like people, I mean, there is... There's less of a stigma now around getting help for your mental illness than there was back then. Back then, it was a significant stigma. People didn't really talk openly about this, but this guy, Stefano, was very open with Hitchcock about the process, and it helped, you know. Sounds like a healthy man. (laughs) Seems like it worked. Oh, right. A hundred percent. And he was saying that like his biggest subject with him and his therapist, analyst, however you want to call it, was him and his mother. So Perfect. That's probably why he did such a good job. They always say, write what you know, which I hate because I like to write shit like dragons and zombies crawling out of the earth. And like, I don't know about that. Where are you hiding your dragons, Sam? Why can't I see them? I know. Where is your Shaun of the Dead little zombie friend in the shed? (laughs) I have lots of little secrets in my closet. All my writing that won't see the light of day. (laughs) A literal skeleton. (laughs) In my basement. House on Haunted Hill, part two. (laughs) Exactly. What else is there to say about Psycho? I mean, there's some fun trivia. To add to the whole mother trend, first of all, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, which I was surprised you didn't yes. know until I told you because one of my childhood crushes was Jamie Lee Curtis and a fish called Wanda. Oh my God. And mm. obviously that means I know way too much about her life. And I know from like some interviews she's done that she said that Janet Lee really liked doing Psycho and it was a really big part of her. And like likewise, Jamie Lee Curtis said that Halloween was a really big part of her and like really was a big memory for her career defining movies for yeah. both of them La- <laughs> except you know at least jamie lee got out at the end and was the last girl trope instead of the slasher victim yeah. <laughs> but you know it's really cool that right, like right. we see you know a positive maternal influence in the actors here right like we get a very very, much very so. good leading lady for a later very good slasher so i love that so do i Oh, and I think we should definitely just quickly mention that the marketing tactics we had mentioned earlier, they were so good. They were incredible. Really gimmicky and, you know, kind of how can they ever enforce something like this? So so for those of you who don't know, Alfred Hitchcock was extremely protective of not having the twist of the end of the movie come out before people had seen it 
he really thought the whole movie hinged on the scene where the big reveal Lila goes to the basement and sees the dead mom. Norman Bates is Norma Bates and et cetera. So he went to great lengths to try and protect this secret through their marketing campaign. And it's a good twist. So understandable. Like I said earlier, you know, if you were to go into the sixth sense knowing, you know, oh, Bruce Willis, you know, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you must know that Bruce Willis is dead. So it's like going into <laughs> the sixth sense knowing that Bruce Willis is dead. It would suck the life out of the climax of that movie. You have to get the like true feeling of the twist at least once on your first watch. Just like the end of Friday the 13th to bring that back. Yes. Yes. That was a great twist. And it, it got a lot of people to see him come out of the water. It's great. You, you need that on your first watch. Right. So the things that Alfred Hitchcock did was he, for instance, he made it a mandate that you couldn't go into the movie late. Well, that wasn't for the twist. That was specifically because they kill off Marion very early on within the first right. part of the movie. And if you missed that, Another he'd get twist. mad at you. <laughs> So, well, because that was a very novel thing at the time. I mean, they, they killed their star in the first act of the movie. Very unheard of at the time. So, obviously, he wanted to protect that, but also trying to hide the fact that Norman Bates was Norma Bates. They had an open casting call for Norma Bates. So, amongst like the Hollywood industry folks, there were agents approaching Alfred Hitchcock, being like, I have the perfect woman for you to play Norma Bates. And he did this because he knows that Hollywood people, if they find something out, they'll spread it all around town and a secret is no longer a secret very Oh, quickly. and I'm sure that that's probably what plays into the three uncredited Norma cast attributions, essentially. Yeah. And then also, he bought up all of the books that he could find to keep people from reading about the twist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is great. This is also the equivalent to an indie film in its funding because nobody wanted to fund this and so he settled on a on like a million dollars which was low for hitchcock and he shot it with his alfred hitchcock presents tv film crew which is awesome right and i also love alfred hitchcock presents yes very good show yeah to your point super low budget i mean i think the movie right before it was uh north by northwest oh, so maybe. good cary grant which mm. had an enormous budget and then Alfred Hitchcock goes to Universal, who are the producers for the next movie, and was like, we're going to make a $1 million movie this time. Not even. I think it only got to like 806000 And, you know, from the producer side of things, they're probably like, uh, yeah, that's nice. It better make a lot of money, though, you know, because these low-budget horror movies, I mean, especially back then, didn't typically make that much money. But Psycho ended up making off of its eight hundred thousand dollar budget. I think it made fifty million in the box office, which is remarkable. Again, uh, when you it was there. a fantastic film, right? And like I said earlier, it wasn't critically loved, but the people loved it. And something Alfred Hitchcock would do would he would have his wife go to movie theaters and ask the managers at the theaters what did people like. What did they seem like when they left the theater? What were moments in my movies that you heard the loudest screams? You know, things like that. In his ghoulish voice, you know. <laughs> he was a very funny man. And, and Oh my God, so funny. A director in particular who cares so much about the audience. 
you know. Yeah, and he's the master of audience manipulation with how he shoots. Yeah. All of his films are like that. Just the anxiety of the crow, the shot of Cary Grant falling under the plane in North by Northwest, that one scene in Rear Window with the flashbulbs. So many brilliant, perspective-manipulating, anxiety-inducing scenes. This is why he's such a good director for this genre of thrillers and horror. And oh man, I just, we love him. And I'm so glad that you talked about Alma because like I did not know that she was such a big player and I have a newfound appreciation for her. Well, you know, behind every great man is an even greater woman. A hundred percent. This is very Like like our relationship. I am so flattered. (laughs) (laughs) But not in the case of the mother. (laughs) Yeah, just leering over me, whispering in my ear. But great film. I'm really glad we got to do this as an episode. It's iconic. You know, many imitators afterwards. Oh my God. The fake commercial Uh, for Psycho Shampoo. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Gus Van Sant wrote that. If any of you are interested, he also did the shot for shot remake with Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates, which we'll let you decide for yourselves how that one goes. But the original is phenomenal. And the book is too. It's got spooky shit all through it. All right. Well, we'll catch you all on the next episode. See you later. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit infinitehorrorsmagazine.com or infiniteworldsmagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at horrorsamw. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.